Thank you for calling Gay Wire. Your call is very important to us. Press 1 for fourth wave feminism. Press 2 for a strangely in-depth discussion about where the worms have gone. Press 3 for... You have chosen option 3. Please stay on the line. Hello, and thank you for choosing option 3. You've reached Gaywire, and I'm your hot and humble host, Terrence Adams. My pronouns are they and them. Use them wisely. You're listening to Gaywire on CJSR 88.5 FM in so-called Edmonton on Treaty 6 territory and Region 4 of the Métis Nation of Alberta, land which has been the home and traveling ground of many, including, but not limited to, the Blackfoot, Anishinaabe, Nakota Sioux, Soto, Dene, Cree, and Métis people. I recognize that I am a white settler on these lands, and that I benefit from the ongoing violent structure of colonialism, and that my work needs to be actively anti-racist and deeply intentional to begin to honor those who have been caretakers of this land for generations. So this week, we've got an extra special guest, Gabe Calderon. Gabe is a two-spirit Mi'kmaq Algonquin, Scottish and French storyteller, activist, and educator who resides on Treaty 6. Later on, you'll hear Gabe and I talk about their new book, Magotis, which comes out in October 2022. It's a radically queer love letter to the community set in a post-apocalyptic world, but I'm not doing it justice, you'll just have to stay tuned for the interview. We also talk about the ongoing process that is decolonization, and about what it means to be two-spirit. All of that and more coming to you very soon here on Gaywire, but first I have a couple of things to share with you. First, the Community Fridge is always accepting fresh vegan donations. The Community Fridge is a free fridge project started by Foods Not Bombs, Yegg, outside of Earth's General Store on White Ave. Anyone can donate, and anyone can also access it. Please check out their socials at community.fridge.yeg on Instagram for more detailed information about what they do and do not accept. Second, Q Lawrence is raising money for a new wheelchair. The one they currently have is not able to meet their needs and is falling apart as we speak. Who is Q, you may ask? Why, Q is a fantastic disability justice activist who also does loads of community work in so-called Chilliwack, BC. I spoke with Q a while ago, and here is a short segment of that interview. Uh, My name is Q, and I use they or it pronouns. I'm in so-called Chilliwack in BC. Um, it's the land of the Chiquayuk and Palalch tribes of the Stolo Nation. I'm a performing artist. I do installation art. I'm also a disability educator um, and consultant. And I also run a free fridge, like a community fridge out here. Um, I'm part of the defund police organizing out here. Um, That goes hand in hand with like all kinds of abolition stuff that we're trying to get going. Um, 
and everything that I do is like very much based in disability organizing. Um, so my priorities are always access and like radical access, open access, um, as well as making sure that no one is left behind and that the people who are most affected by um, by any topic or or area that is being organized around are the ones leading it. Um, so like that's the broad sweep of what I do. Um, yeah, there's there's a bit there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, something that definitely uh, drew me in that I wanted to speak with you about is the the term queer crip. I'd never encountered it before. And would you be able to provide like a brief definition or background of the term? For sure. Um, so queer crip is something that has come up from several places very organically. And it's something that a lot of queer disabled people and like radically politicized disabled people have, um, have kind of identified with and that's the side that I'm speaking to. Um, I started using it like a number of years back because I was already identifying as queer and as um, like disabled. I used the term cripple in a reclaiming way and naturally it was just like this word makes sense to me and just started using it. And from a lot of people that I know who use it, that's a very similar experience. Like um, it wasn't around a single um, political point. It was just that we were, a lot of us were radicalized in similar justice-based and revolution-based politics. Um, the definition of it is really that, um, for me at least, um, is that I mean, to be crip, first of all, is to be, um, for me, is to be radically political um, and um, recognize the identity of disability in whatever form it takes as a politicizing identity and not just, um, you know, the product of your body and society in a, a built environment, but like, um, something that's kind of forced upon you by inequality and inequity um and you know queerness is like this i mean you do this whole show on 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 gay and queer and lgbtq plus politics and whatnot so yeah queer brings a similarly radicalized and radical politicized lens to a lot of identity i think um and yeah that's where the two kind of come together and go hand in hand and um, where a lot of us define define the whole of queer cripness. Um, would you mind elaborating about the politicized uh, nature of disability? For sure. Yeah, so um, the category of disability actually didn't come about until about, I guess, the Industrial Revolution. Um, before that, like, disabled people, what we would now call disabled people, people with mental illnesses, um, various chronic illnesses, etc. I mean, they've always, we've always existed. But like back then, it wasn't a category of social interaction and, and kind of an identity or anything 
And then industrial revolution happened and came with it the necessity to work in a certain way under capitalism. And that's not like common knowledge. That's not something you learn about when you learn about the industrial Re revolution. You don't learn that this whole new subcategory of humanity was created. The political and politicized nature of disability is one that recognizes that disability is um, integral to many of our identities and our ways of moving through the world, interacting with others, and just existing. The same way that queerness is um, an identity because it's something you innately are or become, and because we've had to organize around rights and justice, um, that is applicable as well to disability. Um, psychiatric survivors, um, people with physical disabilities, people with intellectual or cognitive developmental disabilities, all of these things um, have required extensive organizing around to get even where we are today, which is still completely insufficient and unjust and inequitable. How did you personally become involved in activism? I've always been pretty, I mean, I'm a pretty outspoken person. Um, I'm pretty loud about certain things, especially my belief that, you know, people deserve uh, more than just equality. We deserve, um, you know, <laughs> justice and the right to live and all of this stuff. And that goes back to like when I, I was very young. Um, and so between bouts of like homelessness and um, generally needing to fight really hard for my own needs to be met as disabled person, as a trans person, <laughs> um, I think most of us as trans people can kind of be like, yeah, sometimes it's an up uphill battle. Um, with all of those things, like, I have always been very involved in community organizing and um, yeah, sometimes it's been based on necessity or I develop close relationships with um, people who are involved in the struggle for their own justice and liberation. Kind of various facets of my like activism or advocacy or general organizing. Um, and you know, being organized, um, like they all come into play kind of at different points in my life. Um, but they all, again, as I said before, like everything I organize with is with disability justice, and they all kind of stem from that that point because disability and justice includes everyone and everything at the end of the day that is facing facing a justice based struggle. So I would say I started organizing around disability justice about a decade ago. Um, and before that, I was involved in disability organizing and whatnot. I, I lived some of my life as a street-based kid, as well as youth. And um, if you're not fighting to survive, everyone else around you is. Um, and due to that, I, I was pretty active on that front. You can catch the rest of that interview by going to your favorite podcast streaming platform and searching for GayWire CJSR, the episode you're looking for. 
is called Queer Crip. There are two of them, actually, so Queer Crip Part 1 and Part 2. And I just wanted to say thank you so very much for tuning into Gaywire on CJSR 88.5 FM in so-called Edmonton on Treaty 6 territory and Region 4 of the Métis Nation of Alberta. And I think you've waited long enough. I, I can sense that you're on the edge of your seats. You cannot wait to hear from Gabe Calderon, and don't worry, we'll get to that soon. Beforehand, I want to give a quick, quick content warning as we touch on the topic of suicide and anti-Indigenous racism. Take care of your brains and bodies, and here's myself, Terrence Adams, speaking with Gabe Calderon. Uh, government name is Gabe Calderon, uh, and my uh, pronouns are they, them. Currently, I live in Amiskwichi, Wiskaigan, uh, commonly known as Edmonton. Do you describe the sort of work that it is that you do? Mm, What do I not do? Um, So essentially how I understand is in this lifetime, uh, one of the roles that a creator has asked me to do is to be a storyteller. And I take that in a very uh, wide, very uh, expansive understanding. Um, so I do everything from poetry to science fiction, post-apocalyptic uh, novel writing to consulting to anti-oppression, um, anti-racism, decolonization workshops, uh, you know, informative TikTok videos. Uh, so anything and everything that would fall under this massive umbrella of storytelling is kind of what I do. What what inspires you to tell these stories? Mm, so uh, the word Hadagwewinu is the Mi'kmaq word for storyteller. Um, and that's actually my name. Uh, that's my first name, my, my true name uh, that was given to me by my grandmother when I was really little. And essentially um, one of the stories or teachings that was passed to me is that before colonization, there were three groups of people that no matter what kind of battle or what kind of conflict a nation, an indigenous nation had with another nation, these three groups of people were never ever harmed. Uh, And that was uh, nurturers or life givers or people who uh, were pregnant or could get pregnant, uh, children, and storytellers or memorizers as some cultures will call them. And the reason for that is because storytelling is uh, such a important role in our communities. Um, So we did actually read and write, one of the myths of colonization is that indigenous people never writ or uh, wrote down anything. Uh, We did, we had birch bark scrolls, we had wampum belts, uh, we wove, um, you know, entire histories in our clothing and other such ways. But memorizers were really unique because they would spend entire decades of their lives just sitting and listening and memorizing verbatim uh, entire uh, family genealogies uh, in ma- uh, mapping out uh, entire regions um, and also uh, histories, um, you know, 
biographies of important people that had done incredible deeds. Um, and so our method of orally passing down our histories uh, was extremely exact. It was, it was a very precise science. Um, so for me, um, it both, it's, I find it both to be a calling and an inspiration um, to share these stories you know, in the same way that my ancestors have been doing this for quite literally thousands of years. That's that's really um, beautiful. Uh, would you mind talking about how you've sort of adapted this this cultural practice of storytelling to to fit the modern day? Because we have obviously very very different societies that that we're that we're dealing with and technology that we can access. Yeah, I think I think Indigenous people are doing this in an exceptional way. You know, if you look at something like memes, for example, um, you know, there's. Uh, the band office, there's Walking Eagle News, there's there's incredible um, Indigenous people that are taking our traditional ways of storytelling, our traditional ways of, you know, um, you know, sharing knowledge and, and really contemporizing it. Um, in, you know, for example, there's horrible things happening right now, as, as we know, with this uh, white supremacy truck convoy. And uh, it, it, it really is heavy, you know, for a lot of us. And so I'm just scrolling on Walking Eagle News Twitter, and I'm just laughing because it's just, you know, that's part of our medicine as Indigenous people is to take something that's really horrible and to make us laugh about it, to help us heal. Um, so for myself, I uh, I make TikToks, right? And I use this social media platform, um, you know, to share sometimes extremely educational pieces, you know, on the history of Two-Spirit or, or very important information about land back or decolonization. And then sometimes, you know, I just, I make a really funny video um, because we are all complex beings and sometimes that's how we share our messages. Um, and another way too is I, I, I finished writing a post-apocalyptic um, two-spirit uh, science fiction novel, an adult fiction novel um, that's coming out in October. And essentially that's another way of, of sharing those stories. There's a lot of two-spirit teachings in that book. There's a lot of uh, queer chosen family building, a lot of, you know, trans resilience, um, you know, that's just been built into this book, um, but interwoven into it is Indigenous teachings and ways of being, um, you know, and so I think that, yeah, there's just so many ways that, that we've taken these traditional ways of storytelling and just woven them into, you know, social media, into the internet, into memes. Uh, and, it's, and it's honestly a really beautiful thing. Yeah, absolutely. So you you mentioned your book. Would you mind uh, going into a little more detail? Absolutely. Um, so Arsenal uh, Pulp Press, which is like the leading LGBTQ uh, indie publisher, um, I, I think not only in Canada, I think, I think they're a little bit bigger than that, which is amazing. Um, they have accepted to publish my book and um, they're such an incredible team. And so essentially uh, the novel is called Magodis. Uh, and Magodis in Anishinaabe Moan, which is my indigenous language, uh, means like a rebel or someone who fights um, against a system of oppression. And I feel like uh, a lot of us, you know, regardless of our, our race or our sexual orientation or whatnot, a lot of us are Magodis, right? A lot of us are these rebels that are currently fighting for liberation. And so essentially in this post-apocalyptic novel, um, the everything that is good and beautiful, like, uh, you know, trees and nature and plants and animals, all of those beings have left us because they grew tired of 
human beings just desecrating the earth, right? And it's kind of like a warning to what's happening right now. We get all of these notice that, you know, in 40 years, there won't be any more fish, right? There, there's so much plastic on the earth. You know, we get all of these big warning symbols. You know, our, our planet is quite literally screaming at us, you know, to change our ways as human beings to be more sustainable. And so this book is essentially the worst case scenario of, of us just continuing down this path you know, over and over and over again to the point that Mother Nature basically says goodbye. Um, and so we have this, you know, ragtag team of uh, everybody in this book is queer, everybody in this book is trans, everybody has, you know, disabilities, um, everybody's neurodivergent, everybody's just epic, basically, because uh, I find that in so many books, uh, there's your token queer character, there's your token black character, you know, that, and, and it's, we're just so often, you know, the sidelines, we're so often the sidekick, or, or we're not even in the book, you know, we're not even in it whatsoever. And so I really wanted to write a book where the entire integral focus was on two spirit, you know, radically queer chosen family um, of people who come together and, and redefine, you know, what relationships mean, redefine um, essentially like queering, right? Queering chosen family and, and relationship building um, and essentially look at ways in which they can survive and, and be themselves and love each other in this really broken and desolate world um, and fight back against this extremely oppressive system that subjugates like the remnants of humanity. Um, so yeah, I'm really excited. Uh, Mo Butterfly Art, who's an incredible two-spirit artist on Instagram, uh, who's now like a friend of mine, which is amazing. Um, you know, they did the cover art. Uh, so I'm in the spring, the cover will be released and it's, um, you know, I've had several Two-Spirit elders uh, collaborate with me to make sure that the Two-Spirit teachings that I've included in the book are um, just really well, like, stated and elaborated. Um, so it's been a real big Two-Spirit community project. Um, and Arsenal Pulp Press has just been so beautiful in ensuring that that Two-Spiritness, that indigeneity, that it stays so accurate and um, that it's really empowered and uplifted. And, and so I'm just, I've just been really excited this whole process and I can't wait for this book to come out and there will be um, a book launch uh, hopefully in person if not it'll be virtual um, but please please I would love it if you came and um, if other folks in the you know queer trans uh, two-spirit community want to come like this this book is really like my love letter to our community so yeah well you definitely got me excited for it <laughs> my goodness <laughs> Do you have a timeline for for like when the the book is going to be out? Yeah, so officially October 2022 um in all bookstores, you know, chapters Indigo, um you know, if I could just do a personal recommendation for folks to uh, get it at Glass Bookshop, which is a queer owned uh, bookshop here in Edmonton, uh and also also Matthew uh, Stepanik, who's one of the uh, co-owners actually helped me with a very, 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 very early draft of like the first few chapters of uh, Magodis. So it's kind of like, you know, it's it's in the family. So I would just recommend folks get it there. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Um. Okay. Well, that's so exciting. So th this book definitely sounds like a very much a, a labor of love and a a sort of raised by by the the community involved in its in its creation. Um. So would you consider two spirit to like the the idea of identifying as two spirit to be more in line with that of a 
societal and spiritual role rather than just an identity. Yes, that, that's exactly it right there. Um, there's a lot of people who really struggle to sort of understand Two-Spirit. Um, and what I like to tell folks is that there will never be like a singular definition of Two-Spirit because it's it's this massive umbrella term, right? And essentially Two-Spirit people can be anyone from any of the thousands of indigenous nations to Turtle Island, right? What is what is now uh, colonially known as, you know, North and, and Central America, um, you know, this massive continent, that's Turtle Island. And, and so, you know, there's Taino folks, there's Cherokee folks, uh, you, you know, <laughs> Cree, Anishinaabe, you know, there's, there's thousands of nations, indigenous nations, and they all have their own distinct languages. They all have their own protocols, their own governments and law structures and family structures and gender roles. And so essentially what I, what I tell indigenous folks is um, the first thing is to sort of connect with elders and knowledge keepers from your specific nation or nations to learn your teachings around two-spirit. Um, and often, unfortunately, because of colonialism, there's a lack of elders and knowledge keepers that from all nations that know about Two-Spirit, right? Um, so then I tell folks, if you're Indigenous, you should go to Two-Spirit gatherings. And there's some that are also, uh, you know, online, virtual, um, that you can join and uh, learn more that way. Um, but for non-Indigenous folks, what I recommend is simply to just understand that exactly as you said, that it's an Indigenous uh, spiritual and or social role, right, that we carried within our communities. Um, and besides that, it's essentially limitless, right? Some people equate Two-Spirit as being Indigenous and part of the LGBTQ community. Um, and for the most part, you will see a lot of that. There's a lot of that intersectionality. Um, but there are some Indigenous people that would absolutely not consider themselves part of the LGBTQ community um, because their understanding of Two-Spirit is much more spiritual, much more social role than it has anything to do um, with your personal identity, right? So it's a very individual understanding. Um, and every single Two-Spirit person that I've met has a different, um, you know, sort of meaning for Two-Spirit for themselves, according to their nation, their families, their communities. Um, so yeah, and, and I do share uh, about different genders in the book. Uh, I do share about, you know, uh, some Anishinaabe teachings, some Cree teachings about Two-Spirit and how we are the people who see in the middle. We are those bringers of balance, right? Um, and just to share with you, there's a prophecy actually that currently alive today, there is more Two-Spirit people than ever before because, you know, our planet or Mother Earth has never been as sick, right? And so as Two-Spirit people, we are the bringers of balance, not just between, you know, uh, the binary of male and female folks, but also of, um, you know, the physical, like all that we see around us and the spiritual, right? The things that we don't see and also between nature, right? And human beings, like we really are those people in the middle bridging all of these different groups. And that's why you'll see so many two-spirit people um, and also non-Indigenous trans and queer folks. I also find that on a spiritual level, like regardless of, you know, where your roots are from, um, are also more called to these movements. And I, and if you look at queer and trans identities across the world, you see a lot of this kind of understanding of being those bringers of balance, of being those in-betweens. Um, so yeah, we're just, all of us, we're just really called to this work, to do these, this kind of liberation movement work. 
Um, so yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's very interesting that you bring up that, that connection. Um, it, brings to mind uh, in in Greek mythology, there's there's like a definite connection between um, non-binary gendered uh, deity figures and um, also like animal human hybrid deity figures. Um, and there's always that that connection between the the balancing of male and female and the balancing of of humanity with with nature. Um, so yeah, the fact that that's that's connected throughout all of it is very interesting. Um, would you would you mind um, going into how you um, sort of would describe the identity of Two Spirit for yourself? Mm-hmm, absolutely. So for me, it always goes back to language, right? So to the English word Two Spirit is very new. Um, that was gifted to us um, a based off of Niju Maniduk uh, from a vision that one of our elders, our Cree elder, uh, Myra Laramie had in 1989. And so she brought that to a two-spirit gathering uh, in 1990 outside of Winnipeg. uh, And it was sort of like ratified by consensus. But before 1990, before this English two-spirit came about, uh, we have had indigenous um, language terms for thousands of years, right? So I do use uh, Nishmani Dolwak, which is uh, the equivalent of Nishmani Duk in my language, in my dialect. Um, And my understanding um, with speaking with Myra and speaking to other Two-Spirit elders is, uh, so the direct translation, right? Niju or Nij, uh, when we count, Pejik is one, Nij is two, Niswe, Nu, you know? So Nij quite literally translates to two. And then our word for creator or spirit is manido, right? So nij manido wak, which is the plural. So that is the literal translation, right? To spirit. But what a lot of elders have explained to me and what a lot of people who speak languages other than English will also tell you is the English language is quite limiting. Like the way the English language works is you have a word and that word is only that word and it has a definition, right? But in a lot of other languages, especially in Anishinaabe Moan, words have layers. And if you break them down and you break them down even more and more and more, there's just more and more layers and more and more meanings. So one word could essentially have multiple different meanings and, and it could essentially, you know, be endless. And so for Nish Wak, the plural, what was explained to me is that it's someone um, who always sees uh, in the middle with two sights, with two hearts, uh, and someone who brings balance to their community. So that's one of the uh, ways that I define uh, myself. The next um, word that I would use is and uh, is a Cree word that was given to me by Jerry Saddleback. Um, And essentially, um, we have, uh, you know, for example, we have and in Cree means woman. But what it actually means is uh, someone who carries the fire within themselves, because the word for fire is iskote. So iskoteo is is so exactly what I'm trying to say, right? It's uh, you know there's layers upon layers. So ichkoeo is someone who is not a man or a woman, someone who is non-binary, for example, um, who is at the service of their people, uh, regardless of gender, right? So yes, it's a non-binary person, but it's also someone who can be whatever their community needs, right? If they need a, a woman to do something, you become that woman and you do that thing. If you they need a man then you become a man and you do that thing. Um, 
uh, a lot of the work that we do in community is very uh, elemental. So women are the carriers of water. Um, so I've gone to ceremony and I've had elders come up to me and say, hey, Gabe, um, we don't have enough women uh, over to do the water ceremony. Could you go and, and do that water ceremony? And I've said, yeah, sure, no problem. And then I've gone to other ceremonies and I've had elders come up to me and offer me tobacco and say, hey, Gabe, we don't have any men here to start the fire and we can't start the ceremony without the fire. Can you please go and fire keep, you know? And I say, yeah, sure, no problem. And, and I go and I build that fire and, and I make that sacred fire. And then I've gone to ceremonies where there are men and there are women. And I've had elders be like, Gabe, can you please be in the middle as a two-spirit person? And then the element that only we can work with as two-spirit folks is the wind. And so we do that when we sing, we do that when we speak, right? Um, any form of, of, of speaking, you know, just words of encouragement to people or public speaking or educating or storytelling. Uh, and we do that with our breath, like as, uh, you know, healers and medicine people, we use our breath to, to do that healing work. And so uh, and I, I use ikhkwewo a lot. Um, because of that, because it's, it's exactly that I, I am non-binary, but it's also having to do with the role I can offer my community. And then another word, uh, that I use for myself is ayakuel. Ayakuel is a person who is trans masculine, um, would be like the very literal definition. Um, but it means, uh, you know, some, it, some would loosely translate it as someone who has no gender or, um, someone who, uh, may have been born with a female body, but has a male spirit. Um, you know, so there, there's several definitions of it, uh, but I particularly like the definition of transmasculine because I really identify as a transmasculine person. Um, and then the last word I use for myself is Puyon. And uh, Puyon was given to me by uh, an elder by the name of Daniel Paul, who's a Mi'kmaq elder and it's a Mi'kmaq word. Um, and it's, um, it was traditionally used to refer to someone as like a shapeshifter or as a medicine person. And now it's being contemporarily used uh, for two spirit. Um, and the reason why I really, really like this word is again, one of the myths that we have about transgender people is that it's a very new thing. You know, transgender people didn't exist 20 years ago, which is just completely false, right? There's records of trans people the world over for centuries. But here specifically in Turtle Island, we actually have bush medicines, like plant medicines that will boost your hormones. Like we have traditional hormone therapy. If you take enough jack pine tea, it will boost your testosterone, right? And I forget the name of the plant, but we also had a plant that would boost your estrogen levels that we would give for people who uh, were looking to um, help them with fertility, but also for trans feminine folks. And we also had surgeries. Like I need people to understand that there's archeological records of people performing open craniotomies, open skull brain surgeries thousands of years ago on Turtle Island. And archeologists have also discovered that through hundreds of years, people actually improved these brain surgeries and people survive the brain surgeries, right? So when we talk about shapeshifters, we're not talking about it on a spiritual level. We're physically talking about transgender people literally shapeshifting their bodies, their hormones, you know, um, previous to European contact and that being a form of medicine, right? Because from an indigenous perspective, we don't believe anyone was born in the wrong body. That doesn't exist. What's wrong is society. Society is wrong. Society tells us there's there's two bind there's two genders 
and this is what a male body looks like and this is what a female body looks like and if you don't fit in either of those boxes then you're wrong and that's totally not okay especially for our youth and it's the other way around society is wrong there's no such thing as a wrong body every human being is beautiful and wonderful and the only difference between transgender folks and cisgender folks is that in this lifetime in order for trans folks to learn the lessons that they need to learn in order for them to grow and to gain a deeper understanding of themselves, they have to undergo a process of shape-shifting or a process of transformation. And that can look like anything, right? That can just be socially transitioning, right? Just telling your friends and family who you are. That can be quite literal physical transformation, right? You might want to do surgery or hormones, or you might just want to switch up your clothes. Like that process of transformation is really unique to each and every individual but simply the fact that you are undergoing some form of shape-shifting is a medicine. And anyone in your environment that gets to witness that is, is medicine for them, it's good medicine. Um, and so I tell a lot of our youth that, right? And I find it so harmful that in our society, you know, people have to go see a doctor and say, something's I, I wrong with me in order to access care when really the system is what's wrong, right? But anyways, um, yeah, so, I, uh, when I introduce myself in my language, I always say, um, you know, nishmani doak ayakweo puyon. You know, um, these are the words that I use to help community members and fluent language speakers and elders know this is who I am, um, you know, and so feel free to uh, engage with me in those ways, very similarly to other Indigenous peoples who would introduce themselves as aunties, as mothers, you know, as educators. So. I'm introducing myself in those roles. Thank you so much for for going into that. That was that was wonderful. And um, I'd I'd like to sort of call back to something you said at the beginning, where you said that you also would introduce yourself as uh, having the the role of storyteller. Um, and I was wondering um, how your tattoos uh, play into that role, because I noticed that um, you have some knuckle tattoos that I believe were Cree syllabics? Yeah, so close. They're um, very close though, because so Cree syllabics are much more well known as a system, um, but these are um, Ojibwe syllabics. So Ojibwe and the Cree, they're in the same language family. They're just kind of like different dialects. Um, so extremely close, but yeah, these syllabics, uh, the syllabic system itself is you know, thousands of years old. Um, so again, it's a written language, right? Um, and you can find these syllabics um, in cave drawings or like pictographs that are, you know, dated to be thousands of years old. Um, but there's, and there's still people today, one of my elders, uh, Darlene Oje, um, you know, she writes uh, in syllabics fluently and she has, you know, children's books that have teachings, uh, you know, about the baby swing or about the wasp sun, like the cradle board. And it's in syllabics first, right? And then it's in Cree, um, you know, the letters are like in English, but the language is Cree and then it's in English, right? Um, and so these syllabics specifically, um, they say uh, um, which means, you know, love, the law of love, actually. Any word that ends in win, is a, is a law of, of nature that we need to abide by. So it doesn't just mean like love, like in like a romantic sense. It means it, it's for me really like a calling to have that unconditional love. And at the end of the day, my understanding of decolonization is a true unconditional love for the people, right? And, and for us to, uh, to liberate 
from these systems of oppression. And so when I got these done on my knuckles, that was really like my, my call, my, my um, sort of like a remembrance of that decolonial, like true love for the people. Um, and so syllabics are really cool because each symbol is a sound. So in the English language, right, we have individual letters and only when you put them together, um, you know, then into syllables, then they make sounds. But each symbol is a sound. And then depending on what surrounds that symbol, the sound will change. So uh, I recommend folks to just do a simple Google search of like, you know, Cree syllabics or Ojibwe syllabics, and they'll be able to see, see really cool tables. And they'll be like, you know, ba, sha, uh, ga, you know, just different. And then all together, they make really beautiful words, right? So it's a uh, one day, I think one day I'll take syllabics courses and, and maybe I'll learn to write in syllabics. So what does uh, two-spirit survivance look like um, in your opinion? Mm, so for me, okay. When we talk about decolonization or when we talk about land back, a lot of people, they really think of how life was 500 years ago. And they quite literally think that that's what we want is to go back to how things were 500 years ago. Like I've had people tell me like, oh, so we're gonna get rid of the internet and we're gonna get rid of cars. And I was like, what are you, you know, first of all, there is no going back. There's, that does not exist. There is no such way we could ever return to how life was 500 years ago. Um, and then also the second thing people tell me is like, okay, well, I'm a settler. So that means that I have to leave. And then again, I say, that doesn't make sense. Uh, a vast majority of indigenous people to Turtle Island are mixed. You know, look at me. Does that mean I chop off an arm and I ship that arm to Scotland? Like that makes no sense whatsoever. Um, but what what we're talking about is is taking our methods of healing, taking our methods of conflict resolution, taking our traditional way of life and bringing that forward into today's society. So the cars are going to stay, hopefully the, you know, the, the, um, you know, sustainable, you know, cars that are not, you know, ruining our planet. Um, and uh, a lot of methods of, you know, uh, treaty building and relationship building with the land. But essentially, one of the really important things that I want us to take from 500 years ago and bring into the forefront is two spirit centrality to our communities. And so my teachings on two-spirit is that anytime a two-spirit child was born or anytime a child, um, when we turn seven, we have a really important rites of passage ceremony. So from birth to seven years in our communities, you're, you're considered a child and you were called like Aoi, like you were not given a gender. You know, we never had gender reveal parties. You were, you were a baby, you were carried, you were held, you were spoiled, you were doted upon from zero to seven. You just got to play and enjoy life. And then at seven, you had a really important rites of passage ceremony because at seven was the first time that now you became a, a member of the community with a voting voice. And so a lot of children at seven, they would tell the community, you know, I am a two-spirit person, I am trans, or I am, you know, um, I'm in between, or, or however they would disclose that. So when some, and some children were born intersex, right? And so, so the children that were born intersex and the children that would publicly state to their communities at seven, I'm two-spirit, the whole community would rejoice because a two-spirit person um, could do so much and they were so central to our communities. Um, and if a child was orphaned, they would be adopted by a two-spirit person because they were the best um, person to embody 
you know, all kinds of parenting. Um, you know, if someone, we were political advisors, you know, to councils, to chiefs, uh, we were communicators that would travel in between nations to engage in treaty and in trade. And so what I understand is we were so, we were the pillars of our communities. And so for me, two-spirit survivance looks at taking that understanding of two-spirit and really bringing that back into the center of our community building now. I, I encourage so many organizations, so many nonprofits, so many grassroots orgs. I tell them, where's your two-spirit people? You know, and they're like, oh, well, we bring in this elder to do openings. I'm like, okay, but that's that's not enough. Like you need to also have two-spirit people, you know, at the core of your leadership of your movements because you're here on Turtle Island. Any single place that you go on this on this whole continent is indigenous land. So you need to first and foremost build relationship with the indigenous people on whose you know area you physically occupy. And then you need to go the next step after you build those relationships and you need to very intentionally and consensually invite two-spirit people you know, into the core of your movement, right? And understand that that's not going to be as easy as sending an email <laughs> because a lot of people are like, well, I sent the Native Friendship Center an email and they never got back to me. And I'm like, do you know how many people, how many emails they get every day? And it's just from people who want to exploit them and who just want to use them for a photo opportunity. Like, no, 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 no. You're going to have to really do the work of showing that you are actually there intentionally to consensually build a relationship, an ongoing relationship where it's actually exchanging back and forth, um, you know, of ideas and, and opportunities. And it's mutually beneficial, exactly like a treaty. Um, and you're there for life. You're there for the long haul. So if we can do that, if we can um, bring back two spirit people into the center, into the core, so that we can do the work that we were always meant to do, um, uh, that work that we were literally before we were born, we were chosen by creator to do this work. Then I truly believe like, you know, the, <laughs> the world will be okay. And not just here in Turtle Island, but like we mentioned earlier, right? The world over, there are these folks, these, these people, these beings in the middle, um, you know, in so many different cultures all over the world that really need to be brought back because right now, because of colonialism, because of cis heteropatriarchy, those folks are unfortunately pushed to the margins, right? Um, they're the folks who experience the most violence, the most poverty, um, you know, houselessness, um, you know, the world over, right? We know there's a huge attack, especially on trans femmes and on trans women. Um, and it's and it's really, you know, just disparaging and, and unfortunate because there's such incredible, beautiful people on every level that have so much to contribute and the world just villainizes them and demonizes them. Um, so yeah, so to you know wrap up that is what to spirit survivance looks like to me if you were able to speak directly to every single non-indigenous queer and trans person on turtle island um what would you tell them to do to help support and uplift two-spirit folks mm, i would talk about the fact that all of us have ancestors that are not just our like biological ancestors but we have trans I have such a hard time with this word transcestors right we have trans ancestors we have queer ancestors and I want folks to understand that the what we have today was only possible 
because of those that came before us, right? And we still have such a long way to go. Like there has been more anti-trans legislature in the US government in 2021 than any year in, in, in its history, right? So things are getting, you know, worse and worse and worse, especially for trans folks, right? And it's through relationship building. It is through solidarity work. It is through collaboration that we get our rights, that we get access you know, to liberation to these movements. And I wanna talk particularly to white folks in the sense of, um, you know, yes, we need to collaborate. Yes, we need to be in solidarity, but also there are times where uh, we need to be quiet, right? There are times where we need to be in the backgrounds and there's times where um, we are gonna be asked, you know, um, to be in the spotlight because of that white privilege and the fact that we might not lose our lives by being in the spotlight. And sometimes our black and brown um, kin are gonna say, actually, no, I need to be in the spotlight and you need to take a step back and you need to just support me from the background. And that's our space to be like, yep, absolutely. You know, I'm there for you. Um, but I need folks to really understand that if you are a settler to Turtle Island, currently the only relationship that you have to the land is through extraction, is through greed, because that is the legacy of those that came before you. And so it is absolutely crucial that you start making these relationships with two-spirit people and with Indigenous people, because that is when your relationship to the land is going to change from an extractive one to one of reparations, to one of giving back, you know? And I tell folks, um, you know, you, you can do that. I, I've had white folks, and it's really beautiful to me because the white folks that reach out to me the most are trans, are non-binary, are queer. Um, because again, uh, I, I know it for a fact, even if you're white, if you're queer or trans or, you know, uh, gender diverse or whatever, on a spiritual level, you are just, you know, more, even if you're an atheist, like you're just more connected to the land. You're more connected to nature just by being, you know, this being that you are. Um, I've had them contact me and been like, I really want to change my relationship to the land. And I've told them, go, you know, even if you're in the city, go to a tree, go to some water, you know, uh, a creek or whatnot, and, and take some food, take, you know, something to your people, you know, and start making those offerings and start introducing yourself to the land and be like, hey, this is my name. You know, my people come from Scotland and Italy and Portugal, um, you know, and I'm here, you know, my ancestors were settlers, but I am here, you know, trying to repair Right. And that's what reparations is. It's a rep. It's a repair of that. And then you got to go. That's with just the land. But then you got to go above and beyond and start making those reparations with black organizations and with indigenous organizations. You know, you can volunteer your time. You can help them design websites. You can donate your money. You can allocate a certain amount of your monthly budget that goes to QD BIPOC organizations. You know, um, it's essentially limitless how you can engage in that reparation work. But you have to be doing this. Um, you have to work on yourself, right? Healing yourself um, from that guilt and that shame of being, you know, the, that settler um, and learn to weaponize. And that, that's so crucial. Weaponize your privilege, because once you've learned to use your privilege as a tool for liberation, suddenly the guilt and the shame just evaporates because you're like, Haha, you know, I'm, I'm doing this. We're fixing the problems, you know, um, a lot of us, uh, you know, white presenting or white passing uh, indigenous folks, we talk about how we feel like we're spies a lot of the times because we get to use our white privilege and people don't assume us to be indigenous. And then we get to <laughs> find out what the racists are actually talking behind indigenous people's backs, right? And so, um, so I really encourage 
you know, settler folks to find their gifts, to find the tools in their toolbox that only they carry and to really learn to nurture those gifts and to nurture those tools um, and to focus on, on reparation, to focus on community building. Um, and then also super importantly to really engage and challenge um, other folks that are similar to you, other, you know, settler trans folks, other settler queer folks, um, you know, to also do this work um, because black and brown people are exhausted, you know, and, and we're doing this work every single day. So if you need to rest um, because you're burnt out, absolutely rest. But um, just remember that this work is lifelong. Um, and so pace yourself, but make sure that you're in it. Thank you so much for the very clear and, and direct way that, 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 you, that you said that. So we're kind of coming up to the end here. Um, so I guess, is there, is there anything else that you would like to mention that you haven't mentioned? I think it's I think it's important for me personally to have access to all different ways of getting knowledge on two spirit, just because there's so like, um, you know, two spirit people unfortunately have the highest rate of suicide. Like the in Newfoundland, in Nunavut, Nunavik, uh, in northern isolated communities, um, there's more suicide here in Canada than any other country in the world. And the people who are committing the most suicide are two spirit people. And unfortunately, you're not going to find that in any kind of statistics. But we know, we know because after the person died, the whole community is like, oh yeah, they were gay. And everybody in the community was making fun of them for being gay and blah, 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 blah. And it's awful and it's horrible. And so we know that we have the highest suicide rate and the statistics just say indigenous people, but it's, um, it's two spirit folks. And so some two-spirit people, they're gonna learn more about themselves and uh, the suicide prevention is gonna come from a ceremony or from an elder, but some people it's gonna come from an academic paper on two-spirit, right? It's gonna come from a website, it's gonna come from a TikTok video. So I'm just a big advocate of um, get the knowledge out in every way, shape or form possible to uh, reach as many possible people as we can so that we can prevent suicide quite literally right um so yeah so thank you so much and where can folks find you after the show um i mean if folks want to learn more uh, i do have a website uh gabecalderon.com i also have a professional website for uh the consulting collective that i'm a part of called mokinan consulting which is m-o-k-i-n-a-n uh consulting.com um, and folks can follow me on social media at uh, Nishin Gabe, N-I-S-H-I-N-G-A-B-E. Um, I do have uh, on my link tree, I have public so, uh, resources on decolonization, on Two-Spirit, which has like podcasts and websites and toolkits and things like that. So um, yeah, the learning and unlearning journey is eternal. Um, so if, uh, you know, uh, that can help folks in any way, shape, or form, please feel free to use those. And I also want to thank you because, um, yeah, I actually don't get a lot of people contacting me to do any kind of interviews or things like that. So I really appreciate you uh, finding me and contacting me. And um, it's been a really uh, great time chatting with you. And um, yeah, your questions were incredible. So yeah, thank you for having me. Chimi Gwech. Yeah, thank you again so much for uh, spending this time and emotional energy to uh share this incredible knowledge um, with myself and our listeners. 
You just heard my conversation with Gabe Calderon. Gabe's new book, Magotus, will be coming out in October 2022, but if you're hungry for Gabe's words and stories now, you can head on over to their social media and check out all of the links in their link tree. Their at is Nishingabe, which is N-I-S-H-I-N-G-A-B-E. We'll also have this in the description portion of our podcast episode in case you can't immediately transcribe what I'm saying. All right, and with that, we have truly run out of time for this week's episode. Thank you so much to our guest, Gabe Calderon, and be sure to check out the other work Gabe does. They are a truly phenomenal person who you might be hearing some more from in the future. Today's episode was produced by Artemis Peasley, Shane Giles, Jean-Via Vaslin, and Terence Adams. Gaywire is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM in so-called Edmonton, on Treaty 6 territory and in Region 4 of the Métis Nation of Alberta. We recognize that colonialism is ongoing and violent, and encourage you to reflect on your relationship with that, and reflect on what accountability looks like for you, your communities, and the wider social structures we reside within. If you would like, you can follow us wherever you download your podcasts. Just go to your favorite streaming platform and look up Gaywire CJSR. Or you can find us online at gaywire.transistor.fm. You can find us on Instagram or TikTok at Gaywire CJSR or Facebook and Twitter at Gaywire. If you'd like to shoot us an email, you can email us at gaywire at cjsr.com, and you never know, you just might get to be a part of the show. Our artwork is by Travis Erickson. Our original music is by Doug Hoyer and Catherine Hiltz. Stay tuned next to hear your ears crackle the next time you swallow. Until next week, keep it breezy, and please stay on the line.